0: Welcome, everybody. Uh, It's it's good to see so many people just on one screen. Um, And it's uh, my honor to uh, host this study from my living room this evening. And we are going to be dealing with a book of the Bible that I remember the first few times that I was digging into this book of the Bible. I knew very clearly that there was no other book like this book. This is unique amongst New Testament books. It's not written in the same style, and it's not really talking about the same things. This is a wonderful, wonderful book of the New Testament I think all Christians should be familiar with. So let's open in a word of prayer, and we'll dig right into it. Let's pray together. Father God, in Jesus' name we come to you, Lord, and that name is holy, and that name is precious to us, Lord God. We revere that name. Jesus, you are our king, and we are honored, Lord, to be a part of the kingdom of God. And God, I pray that as we spend these weeks together studying your word, that you would add blessing to it. Lord, you would look at the sincerity of our hearts and that you would teach us through this book. God, we love you and we serve you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Man, I see somebody driving and they were praying. I hope you weren't behind the wheel with your eyes closed there, but we'll trust you. Okay, so the book of Hebrews. Um, Let's start by way of introduction of this wonderful book. So the book of Hebrews, uh, when we talk about its authorship, that is something that is still debated today, and this likely we'll never get to a certain conclusion on the authorship of the book of hebrews um, m- many people especially in the early church believed it to be the apostle paul but the the greek here is not like anything paul used throughout his, his epistles so uh it's it's not likely that it was the apostle paul <clears throat> although certainly the theology behind it is very strongly Pauline. Um, Some of the other suggestions about this, and one that I really like, is that it's actually the handwriting of Luke, the apostle, because Luke's gospel is extremely eloquent, and so is the book of Hebrews, written in extremely eloquent Greek. And Luke was a very close companion of Paul. And it wouldn't be too surprising to me if Paul was dictating this letter to Luke. You see, Paul, who is the main author of the New Testament, has written more New Testament books than anybody else, Paul typically didn't write his own letters. He used what we call an amanuensis. An amanuensis is a scribe who simply dictates what the author is saying to him, and he's the one who writes it down. Now, we see evidence of amanuenses being used by Paul in many of his letters. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 21, there it says, this salutation is with my own hand, Paul. So he's saying, the only thing I'm writing with my own hand is the salutation. The rest was written by an amanuensis. That same statement is at the end of Galatians. That same statement is at the end of Colossians and at the end of 2 Thessalonians. So Paul was constantly using amanuensis to write down his thoughts. Now we see this most clearly at the end of the book of Romans. At the end of the book of Romans, the last chapter, we have this wonderful honor rule where Paul is paying honor to, to people in Rome And he's saying, he's giving credit to the people that have really helped him in his ministry. And as he's saying, hey, say hello
1: to this one and say hello to that one, um, we get to verse 20. Amazingly, the next verse says, and I,
0: Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. So Tertius is a... Is, is an amanuensis that Paul used who actually breaks through the writing of the book of Romans and says, hey, I'm the one writing this letter, and I want to greet you as well. Now, there'd be several different reasons for using an amanuensis, and I think Paul's reason, this is, this is my personal opinion, it's not necessarily agreed upon throughout all scholarship, but my personal opinion is that Paul used an amanuensis because he had terrible eyesight and terrible eye problems. Um, we see him mention his eyes in several different books, but most prominently in the book of Galatians, he'll say, you guys love me so much that I think you would have even torn out your own eyes and given them to me if you could. So either that's because Paul had poor eyesight or it's just a really weird thing to say to people that you love me so much you would rip out your eyes and give them to me. So when Paul is emphatic about a certain point that he's making, he'll actually say, I write this with my own hand, and here's his proof that it's his own hand. He'll say, see what large letters I'm using. So Paul was known for writing in very large letters, which is very consistent with somebody with poor eyesight. Now, why would Paul have poor eyesight? Well, it just so happens he's the apostle that was blinded by Jesus the day that they met and um, had the scales fall from his eyes three days later, and that likely left him... Uh, with eye issues the rest of his life. And if you ask me, which pretty much nobody has at this point, I would say that's his thorn in the flesh. His thorn in the flesh was indeed this eye issue he had to deal with throughout his ministry. So uh, Apollos has been used as a possible author of the book of Hebrews. Um, There have been suggestions throughout church history about who this author could be. Because of the eloquent way of writing, And because of the theology, I say the eloquent way of writing might be Luke, and the theology might be coming from the mouth of Paul. That would explain maybe that the the writing doesn't match Paul, but the theology does, and the writing matches Luke. Um, So it's possible, but certainly not certain at this point. So as far as authorship goes, uh, that one's up in the air. We know a strike against Paul being the author is, you know within a couple verses when Paul writes a letter, because he'll say Paul to the Corinthians, Paul to the Romans. He'll always introduce himself where in Hebrews certainly there is no introduction of the author. The second thing I'd like to talk about after authorship is the audience. Who is the book of Hebrews written to? Well, this is the most Jewish book of the New Testament. This is a marvelous book for our Jewish friends and certainly or Jewish friends who have received Christ because this is a book that the audience, it's assumed that this audience knows Levitical law. There's a ton of stuff from the old Testament in here. That's not being taught. It's assumed they already know it. So it's very it's written to a Jewish audience, hence the name Hebrews. Now there's no mention of Gentiles in this book. And Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. So for him not to mention Gentiles would be very unusual. But of course, if he has a purpose in this letter, and the purpose is for a Jewish audience, then that would make sense that he wouldn't mention Gentiles if it was indeed Paul. We see as part of this audience, there are Hebrew Christians who are receiving persecution. Uh, Chapter 10 will be dealing a lot with the persecution that his audience is under. And that will help us date this wonderful book as well, and I'll get to that in a moment. These were Christians, Hebrew Christians, who were being persecuted, yet not to the point of shedding blood. So it looks like it might be early on in the persecution, where maybe martyrdom hasn't quite happened yet, and again, that'll help us date this book in in just a few moments. It seems to have two different groups of Jewish people in mind. Uh, Earlier on in this letter, we will see that he seems to be addressing intellectually convinced non-Christians. So these are people that have not given their heart to the Lord, but they intellectually acknowledge who Jesus is. Sadly, our churches are filled with such people. They acknowledge who Jesus is, but they don't actually have salvation.
1: And if you read the New Testament clearly, especially the words of Jesus, truth. So we'll see in chapters 2 and 6
0: especially, him address that part of the Jewish audience. Chapters 9, chapter 9 especially, we'll see him address unconvinced Hebrew non-Christians. So these are Jewish people that just aren't buying it. And he's going to try to convince them that all of your Old Testament ways have been superseded by a greater covenant issued in by a greater high priest He's a greater mediator than they had in the Old Testament. And this book is largely about the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the new covenant over all things old covenant. Now, the dating of this letter. When was this letter written? Well, of course, they didn't put dates in these letters. So we have to kind of argue from silence here with the clues that we have. So certainly we know it's after Christ's ascension, which would happen around 33 A.D. And we know it most certainly has to be written before 70 A.D. Because the arguments that are going to be given in the book of Hebrews would have been greatly enhanced, if not clinched, by simply mentioning the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70. Jesus actually prophesied that that would happen. And the fact that no New Testament letter mentions the destruction of Jerusalem or the destruction of the temple to me is an open and shut case that all of our New Testament letters are written before AD 70, including Revelation, which most scholarship says was written in the 90s because of the persecution they were under. They thought that was from Domitian, that persecution, but it just as simply could be from Nero, that persecution uh, that was going on in Revelation. So um, the destruction of the temple by any New Testament author would have been the open and shut case that Jesus was a true prophet. He said it would happen, that not one stone would be left upon another. And the fact that nobody mentions it tells us that our New Testament is dated rather early. Uh, My screen went crazy. I don't know if I'm still on or not. Am I still with you, Mike? Are you good with the video too? Because I don't, I don't see anybody. But okay, so I will. Uh, I'll keep going. All right. So the dating of the letter we can narrow down between thirty-three A.D. and seventy A.D. And it's almost certainly during the Neronian persecution, where Nero was blaming Christians for burning da- for setting a major, major fire in Rome. Now, most scholars believe Nero himself set that fire and blamed the Christians so he could rightly uh, kill them. So um, that's likely um, the complication that the uh, Christians are under that this book is being written to. Is that Nero is on a mission to eliminate Rome of Christians. He sets a fire in Rome, blames it on the Christians. And I actually saw a painting today which was a painting of the Roman Colosseum, jam-packed with uh, Roman citizens, and it had uh, a huddled group of Christians that were about to be martyred by Nero. And all along the field inside the Colosseum, there was um, uh, torches. So as it got dark, they'd light these torches, and sure enough, what was being lit on those torches were Christians. They would burn the Christians to light up the Colosseum, and the huddled Christians in the middle, they were letting lions and tigers loose to maul them. So these are the forerunners of our faith, and this is how our faith got handed down to us, is through men and women like that. And we should be eternally grateful for their sacrifice and uh, realize that they were right about how important the gospel is and how important it is not to uh, deny it. So the other clue we get is that it's probably even earlier uh, than 70 AD because in chapter 5, the author will complain that his audience, that they've already been taught the truth, yet they were still lacking maturity. So
1: that's what we would expect from a rather new-believing kid. All, right. All right, so that's authorship.
0: That's the audience. That's the dating. Let's talk about the theme now of this wonderful, wonderful book, the theme. In chapter one, well, the theme is this. It's the supremacy of and the superiority of Jesus Christ, supreme over everything Old Testament. So the book will start by talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ over angels. So one thing that was happening in the first century amongst the Jewish people was angel worship. So the author is going to directly attack that and say that Christ is superior to angels and worthy of transferring your worship from angels to Christ. Then he'll get into Moses, Moses being one of the very, very, very top Jewish figures. So he's going to get them off of their Moses worship or their Moses um, adoration and try to transfer that over to a more worthy object, Jesus Christ. Um, And one of the ways that we see this play out is that when Moses was... uh, going to uh, cross uh, the Jordan River to go into the promised land. Um, he wasn't allowed to do it. God forbid him from doing it and had him go up onto the mountain to die. And what we see is Moses, is, his name is directly attributed to the lawgiver of Israel. So as the lawgiver of Israel, he was not permitted to cross into the promised land because what would that symbolize? It would teach us that if we follow the law, which was represented by Moses, that we can get to our promised land, heaven. And we see Paul amongst all people saying, no, it is not of works that you're saved. It is by grace through faith alone that you're saved. So we couldn't have Moses set the paradigm for us as the lawgiver that if you follow the lawgiver across the Jordan into the promised land, then you'll be in your promised land. No, Moses had to go up on the mountain and die. And who did God give that job over to? Joshua. Now, the Hebrew way of pronouncing Joshua is Yeshua. And when you translate Yeshua into English, it comes out Joshua. But when you translate Yeshua into Greek, it comes out Jesus. So Joshua is actually the Jesus name. So Moses was not allowed to cross the Jordan into the promised land because he represented the law. All he could do was get you to the foot of the promised land. He could not get you in. That job was given to Joshua, or in the New Testament, Jesus, the same exact name. So you see that there's meaning and purpose behind all these decisions that go on in the Old Testament. That's a sign of God's providence, his wonderful providence in in our lives. So we will see Jesus superior to Moses. Another theme Is Well, what about Joshua Joshua brought him into the promised land? So how is he superior to Joshua? Well, Joshua leads him into the promised land and what happens? It becomes an entire rest of the Old Testament full of sin So Joshua could get him to the promised land, but here's what he could not do that Jesus can do He could get him to the promised land, but he could not make them holy That's what Jesus will do for you Okay, So the superiority of Jesus Christ to Joshua. Chapter 7, will talk about the superiority of Jesus Christ to Aaron and the priesthood. So we'll see that we have a better high priest than Aaron or the high priest of Israel in Jesus Christ. It's another theme that will be addressed. We'll also get the supremacy of this new covenant that Jesus ushers in and its supremacy to the old covenant. The Old Covenant was about followed laws. The New Covenant is about fulfilled laws. So it's a superior covenant and that our high priest fulfilled all these laws for us, and we're credited with that righteousness through faith in him. So it's a superior covenant. We also see that one of the themes will be the supremacy of the sacrifice of Jesus compared to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And I have to show this to you through Psalm 40, starting at verse 6. I'll never forget the day that I got Psalm 40. I probably read it many times before,
1: but the Lord just didn't open my eyes to this this truth before. Verses 6 through 8. This is Jesus
0: Christ speaking to his father. And he says, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. So the sacrificial system has become a joke uh, at this time in the Old Testament. They're giving their spotted lambs and their blind animals. They're not giving the best of their offerings. God will actually say you wouldn't feed this stuff to your governors, yet you sacrifice it to your God. So it's become kind of a joke, the sacrificial system. So Jesus looks at the disappointment of his father, and he says, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened, burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, here's what Jesus says to his father, behold, I come in the scroll of the book that is written of me. So he's saying, I'm coming now to fulfill prophecy. He says, and I delight to do your will, O God, and your law is within my heart. So this is Jesus This is Jesus Christ saying, you're not happy with the sacrificial system, so I will come as that sacrifice. He will say um, that you've prepared me and even my back for lashings in Isaiah. So this is what we call, when, when Jesus is called the first begotten son of God, this is the begottenness that's being spoken of, that Jesus is begotten in the role of a savior. That he's actually going to come to save mankind. And we see that in Psalm 40. And that makes his sacrifice superior to the Old Testament sacrifices. And we'll see that played out in this letter. Uh, We will also see the superiority of Jesus' testimony over the testimony of all of the heroes of the Old Testament. So as you know, Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Hall of Fame of Faith. It's the hall of faith. All the greats of the Old Testament are in there. And the reasons why they're in there are given. All their great accomplishments are given. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is going to say. These men were awesome in faith. They had great, great faith and accomplished great things through their great faith. But then as soon as we start chapter 12, it says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, as those heroes of the Old Testament, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So he says, Listen, remember, they didn't have chapters. When this person wrote this letter, there were no chapters. This was one solid, fluid letter. So he gives us all these heroes in the faith through Hebrews 11, and then says, They serve as our witnesses to the power of faith, but don't set your eyes on them. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author. He's the one that wrote in your faith, and he's the finisher of your faith. And it doesn't say it here, but he's everything in between. So when it says he's the author and finisher, it doesn't mean the day you got saved and the day you die. It means in all points in between, including this very night, this very hour, this very minute. So the supremacy of his testimony to the testimony of all the Old Testament heroes. Then we see this play out through other Old Testament folks. Jesus Christ himself will claim the supremacy. He'll say this. He will say that one greater than Jonah is here. So one greater than Jonah is here. And he'll say that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And Jonah served as a type of resurrection. Coming out of the great fish was a type of resurrection. And Jesus says he'll do the greater work of resurrection. He's a superior witness of resurrection than Jonah. He'll also say one greater than Solomon is here. Solomon's known for his wisdom. Solomon's wisdom is played out through the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, especially the first nine or ten, have a common theme about the wisdom of avoiding the adulterous woman. And the advice that Solomon gives his son about avoiding that adulterous woman is flee her, run. It's great advice. But Jesus actually has an adulterous woman thrown at his feet, and he doesn't take the advice of Solomon. He
1: does not run from her. He doesn't flee her, which is the wisdom of Solomon. Well, we see in John 8 that
0: Jesus doesn't flee the adulterous woman, but rather he transforms her into a virtuous woman, the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31. So Jesus has the power of transformation. Amen. I'm sure there's plenty of people listening right now that would give me a story of their personal transformation through Jesus Christ. So um, he'll also say that he's greater than the temple that the temple will be knocked down, but he'll rebuild it in three days, speaking of his own body. So he's a greater temple, and we'll see that played out through this. And I would also point out to you that the Bible, which this book of Hebrews is obviously in, is the superior book to all books. There is nothing like this book. That's why I so respect when a group of people get together on a Tuesday night just because you love the Bible. There is no book like this book. And what I'd like to do for just a few minutes before we dig into chapter 1 is show you how these shepherds, these fishermen, these tax collectors, these are all the people that wrote the Bible. Enemies of Christ, Paul was a tremendous enemy of Christ before he got saved. And he wrote a great portion of the New Testament. How do these ragbag variety of people that are not known for their education, they're known for other things, write a book that is the bestseller in the history of the world and is credited with more change for the good, whether it's through individuals or governments or nations, is credited with more change for the good than any single book ever? How does that happen? Well, I just want to show you In your four Gospels, and I want to kind of open up your eyes a little bit, that there's more to the Bible than meets the eye. This is why it's worth your daily exploration, your daily prayers, asking God to open the eyes of your heart to understand this marvelous book of ours. You will never question your faith when you start seeing layer after layer peeled away from these stories of the Bible and your understanding starts to increase. Let's take Matthew's Gospel, for example. Matthew's Gospel begins, and Ma- remember, there were no chapters. So when I say it begins and I bring up something from Chapter 2, that's still very near the beginning. But Matthew Chapter 2, there's a question that's asked that Matthew is going to use the rest of his Gospel to answer. And it's asked by the Magi to King Herod. And you know this question. The question was, where is he who's been born King of the Jews? Now, Matthew doesn't then say uh, they were told you gotta go to so-and-so's farm, hang a right, you'll see a little stable there, he'll be in the back. That's not the answer that's given. No direct answer is given. Until you get to Matthew chapter 27, a very direct answer is given. So at the very end of Matthew's gospel, we see a beaten-bloody Jesus cross, Jesus cross, Jesus Christ hanging on a cross, and above his head is put a sign that says, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So the question was, where is he has he been born King of the Jews? And it's not answered until he's beaten and bloodied, hanging on a cross with a sign over his head that says, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, why do, do we think God waited till then to answer that question? Because faith is about your heart, not your head. Uh, James will say, even demons believe in God and we got to do better than demons don't we so how does god reach your heart well if you when you look at the cross which paul says in 1st corinthians chapter 1 he says a cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it's the power of god so how could this cross the same exact cross be foolishness to some and power to others polar opposite decisions made about the same thing well when Jesus Christ is dying on the cross, some people saw that as foolishness, some people saw it as power. And if you can look at the beaten, bloodied guy being executed by his government, hanging on that cross, and your heart says, that's my king, then you're, gonna, you're saved. Only a saved heart can look at that beaten, bloodied man and say, that's my
1: king and I worship him. The cross becomes the test. because then it's up to your heart to receive
0: it, not your head. Your head would say no, but if your heart says yes, then that's a great sign. So the, Matthew's gospel is written that way. Uh, Mark's gospel is fascinating. If you follow Mark's gospel, you'll see that when Jesus is accused of driving out demons by the power of Beelzebub, not by the finger of God, That's a line in the sand that Jesus accuses them of committing the unpardonable sin. And every interaction between him and the Pharisees becomes very hostile from that point forward. That was their doomsday. The Pharisees' doomsday is when they accused him of that. And what you see happening is this. Because they said he drives out demons by Beelzebel, Baal is the false god of, uh, of Elijah's day when Elijah goes on Mount Carmel to battle the 450 prophets of Baal, Mark's going to play out that story of Jesus' crucifixion. So if you know that story, you know Elijah battled these 450 prophets of Baal, and it says from the 6th hour to the ninth hour, that's 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, the false prophets were calling out to Baal to consume the sacrifice so they could win the contest, and Baal, of course, doesn't answer because he doesn't exist. So they take their swords and they start cutting themselves to draw blood. Because they believe if they draw blood, it'll help Baal to answer them. But of course that doesn't work. So from 6th hour to ninth hour, which is from noon to 3, they're crying out to a false god, uh, cut up and bloodied, and there's no answer. Now, when Jesus goes to the cross, he hangs there from the 6th hour to the ninth hour, from 12 to 3. And he's crying out to his father. And what he says in Aramaic, the Bible actually leaves it in Aramaic for us to read when he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama Sabakhtini, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was saying Eloi, Eloi, it made the the, uh, people on the ground say, look, he's calling Elijah. Let's see if Elijah comes and rescues him. You see, when they accused him of serving Baal, they were claiming to be the Elijah figure that was to come. And if they're the Elijah figure to come, that makes Jesus a false prophet of Baal because they're the ones that oppose him. So they say if Elijah comes and rescues him, then he must be a true prophet, and then we would be the false prophets of Baal. And Jesus is crying out on the cross the same hours that the prophets of Baal were crying out from 12 to 3. And Jesus is all cut up and bloodied, just like the prophets of Baal. So it looks like the Pharisees are right here. And then Jesus dies without being rescued by Elijah. So the Pharisees go home feeling great about themselves. But then Sunday morning comes, and you know how the story turns out on Sunday morning. Everything changes. So Luke's gospel is written in a marvelous way. The very first paragraph says they're in the temple praying at the hour of incense. The hour of incense is the hour they prayed for Messiah to come. The very last paragraph of Luke, after Jesus ascends to heaven... It says they all went back to the temple and they were praising and thanking God for sending the Messiah. So it starts in the temple with a prayer to send Messiah. It ends at that same temple, thanking and praising God that they sent Messiah. That's a beautiful 360 that Luke does there. And then John's gospel is wonderful where um, Jesus claims to be the greater temple. And John walks you through every article of the temple showing Jesus fulfill it and ultimately his tomb becomes the new Holy of Holies. I know that's like a big bomb drop for none of you that have ever heard that before, but um, I teach the Gospel of Don on Monday night, so tune in there and you'll, you'll see how that happens. All right, so superior book, our Bible, superior uh, Savior, superior to angels, to Moses, to Joshua, to Aaron and the priesthood, to the Old Covenant, to the sacrificial system, um, to his testimony is better, He's a greater prophet than Jonah, a a wiser king than Solomon, and a better temple. Amen and hallelujah? All right. Now, let's move on to chapter 1. Chapter 1. All right. Chapter 1, we read this. The writer writes, God, who at various times and in various ways, Spoke in times past to the
1: fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us. Brightness of his glory and the express image of his person,
0: and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, that's like one sentence right there. Uh, very typical of Paul, by the way, but I'm not going to keep pushing Pauline authorship here. Now, let's break this down and see how marvelous this statement is. So he starts, starts by saying, God, who at various times and in various ways, spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. So, How did God speak at various times and in various ways to the fathers? Well, certainly through prophets. Prophets spoke to the forefathers. Uh, That way we know. He also spoke, uh, his own voice would come down, and certainly Moses would hear that, and Moses would relay what he heard. It's another way he spoke to the, the prophets of old. But it's also saying various ways. What various ways did he speak to them? Well, how about this? He would make a donkey speak. That's a various way that he spoke to us in the book of Numbers. He would would tell prophets to look at this bowl of fruit and what do you see? Or look at this plumb line and tell me what you see. He would speak to us through everyday objects, everyday object lessons. Um, So this prophet is saying, listen, in times past, God spoke many times and in various ways by the prophets. And then verse 2 he says, but he has, in these last days, and by the way, this is a whole nother lesson, but I'll just drop this bomb on you too. The last days began when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, okay? The Apostle Paul is very strong on that. He will always say, we're in the last days. So when we talk about the last days, it's not like the 21st century that brings in the last days. The end of the Jewish age is what they called the last days. And now the Gentile age has come. As soon as a Gentile age is ushered in, we're in the last days. So we're 2,000 years of last days at this point. So he says he has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Now, if you're looking at your Bible, the word his should be italicized. Okay, It's italicized because it's not in any of the ancient manuscripts that they're copying this from. It just says he's spoken to us by a son. And here's why I think that's wonderful, because when it says his son, we already know it's talking about Jesus Christ. But when he writes it this way, he has in these last days spoken to us by a son, he's talking about the prophets of old, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, all those guys of old were spoken to at various times and in various ways by the prophets, but in these last days it's by a son. It's establishing the superior revelation of Jesus Christ to everything the Old Testament prophets got. What's better to learn about a father, to to hear from his servants or to hear from his son? This is going to say it's better to hear from the son than from the servants, which would certainly make sense. So it's saying, here's what all the Old Testament people got. They got revelation through prophets, but we have gotten revelation through a son we're in the family we're hearing from the inner circle okay we're getting a better revelation than anybody in the old testament got okay listen very carefully to this jesus christ is the last and the greatest revelation of god so much so that if you don't believe his son jesus himself will say you can read you can see somebody rise from the dead, you can literally witness a resurrection, but if you don't believe the testimony of Jesus through the Old Testament, he says you won't believe even if somebody rose from the dead. If you Remember when he talked about Lazarus and the rich man going to Hades together, and the man suffering in Hades, the rich man suffering in Hades said, send somebody to my five brothers so they don't come to this awful place. And Jesus said, they have Moses and the prophets If they don't believe them, they won't believe even if somebody rose from the dead. So in other words, the the testimony of Scripture is enough. And here's what Scripture is saying in Hebrews 1. Jesus is the greatest revelation of God. He's enough.
1: Okay? So anybody that says, God, prove yourself to me today. All right. Now.
0: These last days, he's spoken to us by a son or his son whom he has appointed heir of all things. So here's what's going to happen. The rest of this paragraph is going to give us the sevenfold supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's going to give us seven areas that mark the supremacy of Jesus Christ to uh, everything else. So here's point of supremacy number one. It says he's heir of all things. He's heir of all things. Now, all things includes this. All things. There's nothing that's not under the supremacy and authority of Jesus Christ. I have to look this up. I can't remember which forefather said this, but I love it. Uh, He said, there's not a molecule in the universe that Jesus Christ doesn't stand upon and say, mine. It's all his. It's all his. So, He's heir of all things. Now, with that, imagine this statement. We believers are co-heirs with Christ. How does that make you feel? He has inherited all things. and We are co-heirs with Christ of several places I could go. Let me just go to Galatians chapter 4 to show that to you. And verses 6 and 7 say this. And because you are sons, it's talking about we are adopted as sons, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. What an amazing gift. What an amazing privilege. You know darn well that if you were sitting around a lawyer's table because your rich uncle died, you'd be super excited rubbing your hands wondering what you got. Please have that excitement about being co-heirs of all things with Jesus Christ. I don't know exactly what that means, but I know it's got to be pretty good. So be excited about that. All right. So he's heir of all things. is the first of his seven supremacies here. The second thing we see as uh, his supremacies is says he made the world's. He made the worlds. When you read Genesis 1, you probably have a strong picture of the Father in the Trinity. But um, most of the Bible credits it to the Son, including Hebrews chapter 1. Um, Colossians chapter 1 does the same thing. Colossians chapter 1 says this in verse 16. It says, For by him, him being Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. How do you like that? Okay. Jesus, if I read to you John, the first four verses of John chapter 1, it would say within those four verses, and he created all things. Okay, so uh, Jesus Christ is the agent of creation. That's his second supremacy we see in this paragraph. The third is the brightness of his glory. So God's glory, which is so supreme that the Bible says nobody could see that glory and live. um, Jesus is the brightness of that glory. He's the brightness of that glory. The fourth supremacy that we see here is that he's the express image of his person. He's the express image of his person. So, so identical is the personhood of Jesus to the personhood of the Father that Jesus Christ can say this to one of his apostles. Have you been with me so long and you don't realize that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Okay, now I can't say that about my dad. If you ask to meet my dad, How ridiculous if I said, listen, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. It doesn't work at all. But with Jesus Christ about God the Father, he could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's the express image of his person. The fifth supremacy that we see in this paragraph is that he upholds all things by the word of his power. He upholds all things by the word of his power. One of the great mysteries of the universe
1: that philosophers like Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, all these great... Incredibly diverse universe.
0: And, And when I teach apologetics, I love considering this. You consider things like, hey, here I am as a human being, and it just so happens I need nourishment. Well, it just so happens that the things that nourish me grow out of the dirt of the earth. Do you realize what an amazing coincidence that is if evolution's true? That the dirt that we walk upon happens to shoot up carrots and peas and potatoes, and it just happens to be the stuff that I need for life. That we're the only place that we can, our telescopes can see in our universe that has water, and we have a major abundance of water, and we happen to require it. Do you understand what a coincidence that is? If evolution is true, you see, everything is well-designed and it's being upheld by his power. Gravity has to be exactly as it is or there's no life. The earth has to spin the speed that it's spinning or there's no life. Um, There's over a 100 universal constants that have to be within a hair's breadth of multiple hundreds of millions, if not billions of odds to one, has to be precisely as it is or there's no life. It says life is balancing on a razor's edge is how how they state that. And this says Jesus is upholding all of it by the word of his power. Jesus is saying make life happen and everything falls into place for life to happen. That is worth hallelujahs and amens every single day. The sixth supremacy that we see in this paragraph is that he purged our sins. Now I'm going to give you some Greek grammar. If that doesn't make you tune out, then nothing will. You'll be with me to the end. Here's the Greek grammar I want to give you. This verb purged is in the aorist middle participle. And you're going, oh, it's the aorist middle participle. I know what that means. That means that it's emphasizing the subject, which is Jesus, and it's saying that his action is completed. It's an action verb of completion. So he purged our sins. It's done deal. And Jesus says three words from the cross, That emphasized that. What did he say? It is finished. It's finished. And we see that here in this paragraph in Hebrews uh, that he purged our sins in the aorist middle participle tense of the verb which emphasizes the subject Jesus and saying his action is done and complete. Hallelujah again. He purged our sins. And what's the seventh supremacy of Christ here? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down there. Now, there is no high priest of Israel or synagogue ruler or any of them who would ever sit down in their role. They always stood up because to sit down meant that you were the supreme authority. So in Psalm 110 verse 1, we see a messianic psalm. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. In Luke 22 let me find it. Luke 22, we see a similar thought going there in verse 69, where Jesus says, "Thereafter the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the power of God." So it's this completion of sitting down in the position of power and rule that Jesus sits down um, at the majesty, at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay. Now that's our opening paragraph. And the things I want you to remember about our opening paragraph is simply this. We have the witness of the Son and that's superior to the witness of the prophets of the Old Testament. That comes in the first two verses. After that, we get the sevenfold supremacy of Christ that we just went through in detail. So within this very first paragraph of this marvelous, marvelous book, we're seeing the stage set for the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now, how does he begin his argument? How does this author begin his argument about Jesus being supreme, he's going to start laying out the case in a very courtroom styled argument um, for us. So as I said at the very beginning tonight,
1: his audience often worshipped angels. So now he's going to say with the He says, for to which of the angels did God ever say
0: You are my son, today I've begotten you. So rhetorical question after rhetorical question is going to be asked to prove the supremacy of Jesus over angels. So the first question is, to which of the angels did God ever say this? You are my son, today I've begotten you. Here's the answer. To none of them. He never said that to an angel. He only said that to Jesus. Um, He said it to Jesus in Psalm 2, verse 7. Psalm 2, verse 7. These are messianic psalms. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So which angel did God ever say that I'll be your father and you'll be my son? To none of them, the answer is again. He never said that to any angel. And uh, we find that in Psalm 2, 7 as well. But when he again brings brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So, that comes from Deuteronomy 32, 43. So, clearly, the Son is superior to angels if God is commanding the angels of God to worship the Son. Not the Son, the the Son Jesus Christ. And of the angels, here's what he says of the angels, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So, he makes his angels spirits and ministers, but not son. okay. So they're not achieving this level of sonship with the Father. Verse 8 But of the Son, he says, your throne O God is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. Think about that. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now that's a huge argument that Paul will make that that here we have the Father calling the Son God. Can you imagine that? Your throne, O God. This is the Father's voice saying to the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. What a testimony to Jesus being God there. Verse 9, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. So this is talking about the eternal nature of the sun, even beyond the heavens and the earth. They're going to perish and all that, but the sun will go on and on and on. Next rhetorical question. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make it your enemies your footstool? Of course, he said that to no angels. He only said that to his son. And now it concludes with verse 14, which is the biblical textbook definition of an angel. If anybody ever asks you to define angel for them, it's Hebrews 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? They are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to we who receive salvation. So, this says that angels have been in our service since we've gotten saved. Isn't that amazing? Angels are in our service since we've been saved. And I think that is absolutely wonderful. Uh, Don't you wish you could see it? I really wish I could see it. Uh, But I will one day. Now, if... We are co-heirs with Christ, and he calls us brother, he calls us friend, he calls us family, and he's superior to angels. And I just want to throw this little nugget in there for you guys. One of the most common things I hear when I do memorial service is, oh, they've be- they're an angel now. I want to tell you this. They are better than an angel. We are made for a little while lower than the angels. But Paul will say, don't you know that you'll actually judge angels? So those demonic angels that have been pestering you for your life, you'll sit in judgment on them. Isn't that cool? So I would say do your heart a favor and don't picture your loved ones that have passed in the Lord as an angel. They're actually better.
1: They're better than angels. Uh, Angels don't have redemption. Plan for them but God looks at us and he sends his son to die
0: in our place for him that didn't happen for angels we have a very very special place in the
1: heart of God and it's it's better than that of angels so